Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oh, welcome everybody to the show this week. Uh, The co-host, I get the privilege of introducing the show this week. I think I've earned my chops one year uh, plus into the show. Uh, We've got our host currently setting up a live stream for one of our facilities to go ahead and listen to the show. And because he struggles with back issues like that of an 80-year-old Mike. I can hear all all of this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he is maybe a little slow to the take, but speak of the devil, here is the host. Oh, uh, man, it's been an exciting couple of weeks, sir. Are you ecstatic that the Warriors have yet another title under their belt? Um, no, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but uh, I will go uh, media silent for the next two weeks until it all dies down. I'm tired of seeing the Warrior t-shirts, the Warrior flags on cars and this, that, or another, and uh, can't wait for training camp. Hey, yes, training. That you know what you and me both, especially because this is that kind of dull period in sports they always call it after the NBA Finals and before football starts, where there's no hockey, there's no football, there's no basketball, and all you've got is baseball. And when and your right team now, just, like the just San Francisco. The yeah, right. The San Francisco Giants are doing pitifully, so they don't excite me at all. That said, 
Your Yankees have made quite the turnaround from a year ago, and they are crushing it with what I want to say is the third best record in the league. How are you feeling about your Yanks? They have this kid, uh, Aaron Judge, who Mm -hmm. everybody is saying, this guy is the second coming. Like, this guy is the truth. Uh, We usually just still wait until uh, late August, early September, before we start... uh, you know, getting on the uh, you know the official bandwagon. I mean, even though we have okay. lifetime bandwagon seats and seat licenses, but uh, you know we don't really pay attention to what's going on in May and June. And, and in the immortal words of George Steinbrenner, we don't worry about anyone, any Mister Mays. Uh, let's see what he. There let's you see go. What, let's see what the judge does in uh, in 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 the heat of August when it's like it is today. It's about a hundred degrees in New York. Let's see what he oh, does man. The, when it's 100 degrees and 90-something humidity at the at Yankee Stadium in the dog days of August coming up in a month and a half. Okay, well, uh, so then we've got – he's got to earn his stripes quite literally and figuratively. Uh, yep. But so far, he's off to a hot start. Uh, I, as just a fan of the Giants and looking at youngsters around the league, am envious – that you all possess such a talent. Uh, but, yeah, training camp right around the corner. What do we have, about a, a month and a month and a week before training camp starts? Well, my, my the Cowboys will start earlier than all the other teams because they play in the Hall of Fame game in August, so they get an extra week of uh, training right. camp. But, um, you know, that last week of July, you know, during that last week, everyone pretty much ramps up, starts up their training camp. I think there's a mini camp coming up for everybody in a week. Or so. Yeah, that's right. Across, that's right. Across the league. Then it's about a, a month of uh, off time. Go okay. do what you got to do because after that, it's going to be training camp. And so clearly you like your boys to represent the NFC. Uh, but what I will ask you is for your AFC pick. And then I will ask you to give me a surprise team from the NFC and AFC. Doesn't necessarily have to be a team that's going to make the playoffs, but a team that you think is going to make a bigger turnaround than expected by the majority of folks out there. I am fully expecting the Raiders to, 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 to challenge. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm thoroughly disgusted that there's a 75-year-old quarterback in, in New England that's still dominating and, and fortunate enough to be in the AFC East so that he just gets a smooth sailing right into the uh, you know divisional round of the playoffs every year. Um, okay. So they, okay. they basically got to – what is that? They got to win two games to get to the Super Bowl. That's right. Every year. So um, – so the Raiders, I'm hoping for the Raiders to to make a small, a strong push to 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 come back to prominence. My surprise out of the AFC would be uh, the Cleveland Browns making a, Ooh, a legitimate okay. turnaround, maybe going like 500 or seven and nine, something like that. Sure. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, because if that doesn't happen, I, I think the coach will either resign or get fired, even though it will be wrong either way. Um, but they got to start seeing some now fruits of all of these draft picks. 
That's right. That's right. You know, we're, okay. We're now in year two, year three of some of these draft picks. Now we got to start to see some fruit. So uh, seven and nine, eight and eight, something around in, around that range. I like that. That is a big turnaround. Uh, NFC. Uh, of course, I'd like to see my Cowboys uh, take the next step, i.e., win a game or uh, sure. get to the <laughs> NFC Championship. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. That they're they're. Uh, but I, I, I can't I can't speak to that yet until uh, I see what their secondary is like in the preseason. Um, I'm not worried about their offense, um, but we'll see. Now, did you ask me for an NFC uh, dark horse surprise? Yeah, surprise, surprise NFC pick. Um, just as far as turnaround, just like you mentioned, Cleveland. I think the Eagles will take a jump. Okay. I think the Eagles another will take team a jump. out of your NFC East. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, they they. I believe the Giants. People think the Giants took a major step forward. I think they took a step backwards because they they didn't address their offensive line. And that was yeah, that was kind of one of their uh, bugaboos, if you will. It, it's one thing to have a great receiving core. They they didn't address running back. But if your quarterback has to consistently make three step drops, boom, and and let it fly, you know, so all you're doing is running what shallow crossing routes and you know and hoping mm-hmm. the guy can take it to the house, right? That's a pretty good hope when you got a man like Odell Beckham Jr. on your squad. But yeah, no, you, you, offensive yeah. line, the Cowboys have proved it, and not not over the past couple of years. But the Cowboys have proved it, and the 49ers and all teams that ever had a quote-unquote dynasty, multiple championships, proved that that is the way you win, both back then and today. It starts in the trenches. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the hogs up front, you're, uh, all your skill position players suffer as a result of that. So, Yep. And, of course, the quarterback. Of course. Of course. Okay. All right. So we heard it here first. The host has dropped the surprise dark horses, Cleveland, perhaps an eight and eight, a 500 season or thereabouts. And the Eagles, another team in his NFC East to make a jump. Sounds good. And I do agree with you, by the way, that the Raiders um, could very easily, I mean, we're speaking like they haven't done it yet. And it's altogether possible had Derek Carr not broken his leg in the last game of the season or whatever, that they would have challenged the Patriots last year. Right. Uh, So they can definitely do it this year. And if Marshawn Lynch is anything like he was with the Seahawks after a year out of football, uh, yeah, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with for sure. That's a question mark. That's yet to be seen. Um, However, I will say for let's, for example, for the Raiders, when I say taking that next step, obviously we mean, you know, uh, you know, staying healthy, all things equal, right? Staying healthy and taking that next step in the playoffs. But, for example, like that Thursday night game, Monday night game, whatever it was, Sunday night game against the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, winning that game would have been a game, you know, like a, a pivotal, you know, move forward game for them in terms as an organization. I agree. You know what I mean? But they didn't win that That's game. Right. That's right. Instead, they Defense. got Alex Smith. 
<laughs> certainly did. Yeah, their defense needs to improve a bit, that's for sure. And I think that's why they – I think with their first-round pick, they drafted a, someone in the secondary, or they definitely – they addressed the defense because obviously their offense could score with the best of them. So. All right. Well, time will tell. Uh, shall we uh, move forward to the topic du jour? Uh, sure. Um, so, just a little background. I think we've done – this will be, I think, our official second – I think our second show in three years on relationships. We've talked about it a lot more than that connected with other topics right, um, right. other than that just being the topic and of course have dealt with it through many questions in the X-Files and on uh, phone calls etc um, but the reason why I think it's a good topic to continue to do annually um, or as often as we need to is because it comes up so much not only right. through uh, you know people talking about it and asking questions directly or indirectly related to that subject matter, but because we know it comes up so much in the treatment environment. Um, it occupies people's brains. It occupies their thought processes. It occupies them verbally. Um, it, it just occupies them for many reasons good, many reasons bad, many reasons ugly. But it's a reality, so we must deal with it and talk about it. Um, so I kind of wrote out in the um, description uh, three, you know, categories, so to speak. Um, first, opening up with, with my, uh, my, you know, what I call my statement. Um, you don't have to sign on to it. That the number one cause of relapse for those in recovery. Um, is relationships, but I so when I make that statement, I just let it hang out there on its own. I don't put any qualifiers on it. Okay. However, I did add one qualifier in the written description. In parentheses, I wrote NSE, and I don't think anyone knows what that means because I just made it up. Um, but it <laughs> might actually be a real thing. I don't know, but it stands for um, studied empirically. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I like um, that. So, so we don't have any empirical evidence uh, uh, that has been studied and put into journals, reported on journals that we can point to. But I think our combined years of experience has taught us that this is the case. Um, that either directly or indirectly, in one way, shape, or form, that this is overwhelmingly the number one reason why people uh, relapse in recovery. Absolutely. Um, in fact, um, I have had a conversation with some of the doctors in our program about this topic, uh, the topic of relapse, I should say specifically. And yeah, overwhelmingly relationships comes up as the number one reason for relapse. And a close number two is environment, like returning to the same old environment. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, relationships is always at the top. So I, I after just so we drop that statement, which then, you know, begs the question: Well, why is that? You know, why is and our relationships themselves 
such an issue in terms of the, for those in recovery. And for for me, from my perspective, my experience, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've listened to, uh, I don't think there's anything that uh, touches, that impacts people more than their relationship to other human beings. And one of the things I always mention when I do put qualifiers on is that when we talk about relationships, you know, I know a lot of people's minds automatically goes to the romantic relationship, but that's not what we're only talking about. We're going to touch on that, of course, but we mean relationships, period. So whether that be with uh, family members, loved ones, romantic relationships, friends, et cetera, et cetera, um, managing them in a healthy manner, all those relationships, no matter how you characterize them, are important. And when you don't either have the tools or you don't utilize the tools when you need to, not when you quote-unquote want to, many people kind of know what the tools are, but when the going gets tough or the going gets rough, they have not either developed – they have not either – they've either not developed the ability to – you have their brain control their emotions so that they can put those tools to use in the heat of the moment, or they make a conscious choice to not use their brain and put their tools to use. So only the individual through retrospect knows which one it is at any moment in time. But that's my take that it's, it's such so touches on everything that, the addict does in relation to their recovery process that relationships become very important. I agree. I await your astute comments. Yeah, I agree. Um, Boy, you know, in all the years that I've worked in the field and it's funny how um, I think one thing that I would like to specify too in, in making my points um, and just to kind of expand off some of the things you said are that uh, relationships don't necessarily need to be romantic relationships when we're talking about relationships being uh, a predictor of relapse. Um, it could be any kind of interpersonal relationship or interpersonal relationships that one has, um, relationships within one's own family. A relationship with, you know, mom or dad or relationship with um, your children, um, you know, relationship with close friends, because a lot of times, you know, again, not ro- not romantic in nature, but a lot of people have really close relationships with very, very um, close friends. And these friends are friends that they've used with and, uh, you know, going back to try and navigate how can I maintain this relationship or this friendship um, with so-and-so who I've known my entire life who uses, um, you know, you could be kind of playing with fire there if you're not very strong or stern in your boundaries. And then, of course, the romantic relationships. And I think, you know, we've touched on it in a lot of other shows of the draw toward why um, – you know, why even bother getting involved in a romantic relationship at this time in your life? Uh, and then some of the things we've mentioned, 
you know, in passing on other shows because it related to the topic we were speaking about are the vulnerability that a client uh, goes through while they're in treatment. Uh, you know, th- this feeling of you're being exposed and you're sharing things with people that you maybe never shared before and you are doing your best to cope with this kind of flooding of emotions that you're feeling and then all it, you know, takes is somebody that you might be attracted to to check in with you and ask how you're doing and, um, you know, that kind of comfort or that kind of security feels good in that moment. And then that kind of thing can turn into a relationship. And now all of a sudden um, you've got your eyes set on something as priority number one and forgot to keep yourself or neglected to keep yourself as that top priority, which is why you're in treatment to begin with. Uh, And that's just in, you know, when you're in the treatment setting, but this also has to do with when you leave the treatment setting. Um, obviously you're going to be exposed to a whole new set of stimuli in the real world that you maybe didn't experience to the fullest while you were in treatment because you were in that kind of safe environment. Um, and that might kick up a plethora of different things for you. And when you're in that kind of a situation, again, the vulnerability could kick up the insecurity and having somebody there to help you through that can feel very, very good very comforting, very consoling. And as a result, you start to place that as a priority over the work that you should be doing yourself to begin with. Fascinating. Um, You mentioned when our, when our dear clients, like they call the North Korean leader, our dear leader, our dear clients, when they are given some attention by one of their uh, pairs who they may have developed a sudden, sometimes it's a sudden onset, sudden on, let's call it SOA, sudden onset attraction. There you go. You didn't, know, you didn't know it existed. All of a sudden, boom, I'm smitten. But one of the things that used to be stressed was that's okay. That's normal. It's human. Okay. The question is, can you talk about it honestly and openly and say, hey, you know what? I have an attraction to that person. And acknowledge some truths such as it feels good when I interact with them. So oftentimes, and sometimes we'd have to put people in a headlock to get them out of this is – you know, fair would rule. Well, if I talk about this or reveal this, um, one of two things would be the case. Either I'm afraid, you know, of talking about this because of how people may look at me, or I don't want to talk about this because I may decide to act off of it. Right. <laughs> I don't want no one to have to jump on. Right. One of the two. So after beating you up a little bit, we usually get to the bottom of which one it is. But ultimately, in the end, it doesn't matter which one it is because we just want the truth either way um, to be able to show and point out to you, our dear client, that those feelings are normal. What we're trying to find out is can you articulate them? Can you learn to identify them and speak to them? Okay. And then once you do that, can you then control how you act regardless of what you feel? So, yes – In the treatment environment, one of the biggest tests, and I've always told the male clients this, 
One of the biggest, biggest tests of impulse control, self-control, and self-discipline is whether or not you can resist natural urges to involve yourself in things that are inappropriate when it comes to uh, you know, relationships in the treatment environment. And I said, if you can do that, okay, and by the way, just for people who might be thinking, well, it must be easier for people who are married or in long-term relationships. I have not found that to be the case. <laughs> how, many, how many people do we know come in, you know, usually the males, because more males come in, obviously. But I'm sure it may work both ways. And, you know, we give them the speech. And they'll be like, no, nah, no, we're not, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in any women here. You know, I'm married or I'm in a long-term relationship. I got my lady out there. You know, I want to get that, you know, worked out, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to, in our, to ourselves, we're saying, yeah, okay. We'll see. Time will tell. Yeah. <laughs> we've, heard, exactly. we've heard this one. We've heard these words before. Uh, especially the line about, uh, well, you know, none of, none of the women in here are, you know, my type, or I'm not attracted to any of them, and or quote unquote, none of them are lookers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And three three months later, they look like runway models. That's right. Um, but it's whether or not can you, you know. So these are natural feelings, natural urges. One of the things we try and teach the staff, you know, we, we don't want to use an anvil and a hammer on somebody with something like this because they're natural feelings and urges. Right. And there's no way, there's nothing you can do to prevent them from occurring. What we're trying to do is get, teach people to recognize them, identify them, speak to them, articulate what they're feeling, okay, which then our hope is it then leads to them being able to control what they do behind it. So that's the science. That's our, where we're trying to get to understand. That's the science behind it. Um, and if they can then do that, you can then apply that same science methodology across the board to, to other things that you're doing. So that's what Agreed. we spend our time that's that's what we that's what we spend our time trying to do when it comes to relationships um and that's what we spend our time trying to do when it comes to uh getting them at least to in, in the treatment environment identify first the feelings And by the way, let me add, it doesn't matter if it, because remember we said, most people always think we're talking about romantic, right? And mm-hmm. that's, we often, you know, in the treatment environment, always end up dealing with that one the most. But if you've ever sat in an encounter group, you would know that that's not the only relationship issue that comes up. There's issues between people working on friendships. There's issues between people that they are, you know, of transference, like you mentioned, because of of a parental relationship, you know, you might have an older person in treatment and there's a younger person in treatment that might remind them or vice versa of of their parent or of their child or whatever. And transference occurs, you know what I mean? In terms of Mm -hmm. their relationship between each other. So many different things, but I think, 
that answers the why is that? Why, why is relationships, you know, such an overwhelming cause of people um, falling back, taking a step back, relapsing? That's I completely reason, agree. I think. Now, moving on. By the way, just for the just for the uh, record, just want to state because since we're on, uh, we're we're set up. Would you say we're about ninety percent there in terms of our studio setup? Yeah, I would say our, we're our remote. We're just waiting for. There's one more thing we're waiting for from AT and T, and hopefully that will get into place soon, and then then we'll be set. But we're almost there. But one of the things I just realized I don't like about this setup, going off topic for a minute. Um, so we're no longer using our boom mics, right? That's right. Yeah, that's and right. So if, if people see on our OCG radio Facebook page, there's a picture of me with the boom mic in front of me. So we're no longer using those because since we're remote from each other, we no longer have to use boom mics. We can use headset mics. Um, but I already can tell you one thing I don't like about the headset mics. There's no way of getting away from the mic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, it's there. So everything it's right there with I'm, you. I'm, I'm trying to fiddle around with my pips. Anyone who's been around a while with the show knows what I mean. And, yeah. you know, it, pick, it picks up every sound. So I have to figure out a way to move this mic away from me. Can you, can you tell as I'm moving it away from myself? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Loud right, and good. clear. Loud and clear, right. my friend. Oh, you st- you still hear it no matter what. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're hearing it. We're hearing it all. So there's going to be background noise, which people probably wouldn't have heard before. We apologize, but that's just the nature of the beast. But moving right along, um, did I tell you it's about 97 degrees in New York today? You yeah, you said it was something okay. up there. You said even close to a hundred. Yeah, I'm sure it's uh what are we still in June, so it's pretty warm for June. I don't know how humid it is, but if the humidity is anywhere near seventy, eighty percent, it's quite uncomfortable. And we're not even in right. August. they're not even in August yet. There is some old school industry dogma out there, which we have spoken to, touched on. In this, not this show, but in previous shows, on um, when those in recovery should pursue romantic relationships, and obviously we get that question a lot. When's the right time, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's first state what the old school industry dogma is. When I first heard it, what I was told was, you know, to wait two years after you, you know, treatment or two years after your recovery, I'm not sure what they meant, to be honest, but all I kept hearing was something about two years before you, you know, pursue a romantic relationship. And my guess is, and I think I've stated this, that the thinking was that um, the that two-year period should be dedicated to you. You owe that to you. So, and it's, I guess it's just like the line I used to try and trick people with, you know, who said, oh, I've been using it for 15 years. I said, well, then what's one year to change your life back? If you've been using it for 15, what's one? Because people like, you know, have a problem with like, I got to be here for a year, you know, back in the day. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like a long right. time. I was like, oh, yeah, but you've been 
ruining your life for 15 years. So what's one year to, to get things back in order or start that process? So my thought – I've never asked anyone from the old school dogma university you know, what, where that came from or why that's so, but I presume – you just putting two and two together that it was for you to just focus on yourself and that when you had yourself in order, your ducks in a row and, you know, and whatnot, and you got your, you know, got back on your feet that it would be around that two year mark when all was said and done. And then, then you'd be ready to take on, you know, romance. Mm hmm. Would that be your similar understanding, or what was your understanding when you heard, you know, that same dogma? By the way, I'm gonna put my headset down for a minute because I'm adjust my air conditioning. But go ahead. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, and I, and I'd like to speak to a more the more I guess the general topic of the the dogma as it pertains to relationships, and I think that there's something that you and I have touched on in other shows and it wasn't necessarily um, out of the topic, but I think a lot of the recovery support time segment, when we would have callers calling in and asking such a question about uh, when is the right time to pursue a romantic relationship and um, expanding further than, you know, what, what you mentioned as to the certain things that we hear as far as answers to that question go, um, there would be a wide range, you know, there would be X amount of time, this amount of time, uh, you have to wait at least one year, at least two years. And something that you have always said to the callers is, um, you know, you'll know when the time is right. Uh, you know, that's not to say that if you've made it through your whole, uh, residential portion of treatment and you're out in the real world and you've been clean for 11 months out in the real world and, uh, the potential love of your life should cross paths with you, but because you still are 30 days shy of a year, you need to, you know, be strong and say, you know what, I, I cannot take advantage of this potential opportunity. Um, you know, then that's absolutely silly because there's not going to be a set amount of time that's going to make it right or wrong for anybody. Um, you need to listen to yourself. You need to know that you come first. You need to be strong in your recovery and all those things considered, if you are open and ready to have a relationship with somebody at whatever time frame that may be, then I would suggest moving forward with that kind of mindset. And I think you said that to a number of callers to say, you know what, when you're ready and the time is right, it'll be and be open to it. Um, but there is no clear cut cookie cutter kind of answer that, you know what, no, you you must wait X amount of time. And if you try and engage in a relationship prior to that time being up, uh, you're destined for failure, doomed to relapse. I, I don't think that that's um, reasonable and or correct for that matter. I think we have advised others, like you said, that um, I think it's reasonable in, in, in certain trimesters of treatment, and, and we're probably going to have to do another show on the trimesters under the new the, the new dynamic, the new paradigm, because the trimesters of, of yesteryear don't apply anymore, at least in the residential setting. So we, we might have to do two separate 
the, the, the trimesters for residential and then the trimesters for the treatment experience period. Mm-hmm. Off top, off topic again. Um, yeah, so if you are in, in in the initial stage stages of your recovery process, of course your focus should just be on you. Um, and other than you know, if you're in a co-ed program, you know any temptations within that, um, your exposure is limited to outside. Unless there is already someone existing, you know what I mean? So you came into the program and, you know, you had a significant other out there already. Um, and then it's just a question of whether or not that person is, uh, a, is a support or a detriment. Um, yeah. If they're a support, then obviously, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're about, uh, you know, keeping people people, families, you know, et cetera, together. Um, so it's just about sourcing through what, what's that about, where, where, where that's at, and how that's going to impact the process for you because it all comes back to you being the most important person in the world, not the other person or not the relationship, but you. Um, so we were always going to be partial to you, dear client. Um yeah, there can't be a, a fixed time. So apologies to the old guard, uh, which is still, out, but it's still out there. I think if you go into certain circles, which we shall not name, um, you know, that's still the going thing, obviously, because we still hear it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I would love to discuss or even debate someone on that question because I don't understand the logic behind it. It be the logic belies human nature. So to me it's like a walking setup. Yeah, so I agree. Maybe one day we'll find a uh a, de- a debate partner. Someone that's they must stay 2 years before they get into romance. <laughs> Right, right, right. We'll, I mean, we'll that's out them. there. We'll debate them on air. That's what we'll have to do because that's definitely out there. Yep. Uh, all right, we're at the bottom of the hour. Why don't we take a uh, quick commercial break, come back, and we'll discuss the third part of our uh, topic. Perfect. Yeah, we are going to drop a little soundbite, a little PSA to our brothers and sisters out there doing the same thing in the field. We will be right back on the other side. The Children's Health Council in Palo Alto has been serving children, youth, and teens in San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, as well as the greater San Francisco Bay Area, for over 60 years. The goal of the agency is to remove barriers to learning, regardless of language, location, learning style, or ability to pay. At CHC, we specialize in ADHD, learning differences, anxiety and depression, and autism through our center, two schools, and community clinic. No matter how big or small the issue is, just call us, and we'll help you navigate your child's journey together. Visit our website at www.chconline.org or call us at area code 650-688-3625. Again, that's area code 650-688-3625. 3625. At CHC, we're here for you. And CHC, estamos aquí para usted. 
The Latino Commission Drug and Alcohol Treatment Services in South San Francisco was organized and incorporated in early 1991 and going on 22 years of providing services to our community. The Latino Commission, also known as TLC, would like to offer our services to those struggling with a substance use disorder. We have residential facilities for men, women, mothers and children, outpatient programs, transitional and SLE homes to assist and promote a successful recovery for individuals. We at the Latino Commission provide educational services on self-esteem, assertiveness, life management, coping skills, anger management, limits and boundaries, and other various subjects. The Latino Commission, restoring people holistically in an environment of love and understanding that represents our culture, improving quality of life. And we are back. So a little shout out there to CHC and Latino Commission, a couple of organizations within our county out here who are after a similar mission. Always good to give them a little sound drop every once in a while. Yep. Uh, Mr. Host, on to the third, the third and final part of the segment. Is this, by the way, the, the reason you wrote relationships three times in the topic title, or is this just happenstance? Uh, no, that was just happenstance because as you think about it, you just you know shake your head and go relationships, relationships, relationships. Very true, oh. very true. The death knell for some of our clients. Yes, um, sir. We even did a uh, what would you call that? I, I know what the show was when we did the show on Juan Car uh, the the travails of Juan Carlos and how uh, he went down. You know. I think we just told the story of his experience, which that had to do with relationship. But um, our third part of our topic is the question of uh, why do romantic relationships birthed within the recovery environment fail? Mm-hmm. Now, the fact of the matter is we've we've said numerous times over the last couple of years that you know co-ed programs are going by the wayside um they're going the way of the uh of the what what what's what's going by the wayside what can we make what what kind of analogy can we make with what else is going by the wayside landline phones it's going it's uh, going they, the way yeah there you go going the way of landline phones off topic again. You know, I tried to get a landline phone installed to my house, and AT&T refused to come out and install. They said we don't do landlines anymore. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't laugh at you, but you clearly aged yourself in that request. I specifically had a reason why I wanted a landline phone, but we won't discuss that on air. But anyway, <laughs> moving right along. Um, yes. I mean, the co-ed environment, is, is, it's a setup, obviously, um, but it's it's – when I say it's a setup, I'm I'm say I'm afraid of two ways. It's a setup, but it's also set up, right? Um, present certain things that would mimic real world environment, real world situations, real world temptations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So we know that, and and the powers that be. 
that means everyone outside of us, you know, funders and, and people that we contract with, et cetera, they absolutely hate the co-ed environment. They hate it. And they and the reason they hate it, dislike it, I'll use that word, is not because they don't think that males and females can succeed in treatment together. No, no. they dislike it because of the incidents that may occur that you then have to report that, you know, everyone gets kind of que- – not us, by the way. I'm just saying – get kind of queasy about. You know, because what are you going to do? It's just uh, it's it's human nature, right? So I mean, unless they're separated by two separate you know cell blocks, you know. But even then, you know, remember we used to always ask about the adolescents: How do you stop it in juvenile hall? That's right. Or or here's the question that really stumped them. Okay, when we got tired of them getting on us, you know, and like we were, you know. You know, not trying our best to prevent the kids. I'm just using the kids as an example, from you know doing what kids do. And we said, okay, let me let's ask you this question. In the in, in the single gender programs, all male, all females, how do you stop same sex acting out? And by the way, when I asked that question in 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 the, uh, you could picture vision me asking the question, then leaning back on my armchair waiting for the response, <laughs> knowing that there will yes. be none forthcoming because there's no answer. There's no way that you can stop that. What are you going to put someone in every room? Right. Not everyone walks in the door speaking to what their sexual orientation is. Okay. Sometimes you find out by an incident occurring. So very true. So the issue of romantic relationships is not just limited to opposite sex. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case in today's world. It's happening with same sex, etc. So that has now been broadened in the treatment environment. From just the question of male and female, but, you know, same-sex attraction, same-sex acting out. And so either one that occurs, that's birthed in the uh, recovery environment, is doomed for failure. And I've said this for years, doomed for failure. Now, I have to recount a story that happened to me in treatment to kind of move to my point. And remember, I was a two-month member, or as they were referring to me as a two-month dingbat. Um, remember the old daytop expression, day one, ding, day one dingbat? Yes, I do. <laughs> so they were referring to me as a two-month dingbat. And back in those days, when you were under three months, you – you were usually under the, the quote-unquote unspoken rule of to be seen and not heard. That was the, per, the, the perception that the older members would try and either give off or enforce through intimidation. And, of course, I was having none of that nonsense. Uh, 
But one evening in, in group, we were talking about um, just things, and um, I mentioned that, you know, wh- whatever what, you know, whatever you got as a negative reservation, whatever it is, okay, you're going to eventually live it out. And the reason why we, this subject came up there is because we just finished having a general meeting, and it had to do with relationships in the house, okay? And, of course, I got shouted down and saying that that's, that wouldn't be the case. I said, no, whatever your negative reservation is, so even if it is to date, you know, you know hook up with someone post-treatment or whatever the case may be, you will eventually live it out, and more often than not, overwhelmingly more often than not, we call it a negative reservation because there's usually a negative result, a negative consequence. Mm-hmm. And the same applies to relationships. Um, now, what's the, the real reason why I make this argument? And this is just from me. You can speak to yourself, but this is, this is what I put forth as the reason why they, they fail 99.9% of the time. And that is because the natural process of a relationship developing has been circumvented. And again, it matters not what the orientation is. Okay? The natural process of a relationship developing has been circumvented. So you're in the treatment environment with other people, and you're participating in groups with other people. You are having conversations you know, and other people around at the dinner table, breakfast table, lunch table, etc. And we are learning things about each other that we wouldn't ordinarily learn. Okay? So we're putting our you know, we're putting our toes in the water and doing this trust in our environment thing and speaking about things that normally we wouldn't be talking about to strangers. So while I'm in the treatment environment, I'm learning things about other people that normally I would have to um, be privileged to. And the privilege comes from me proving myself that I'm worthy to have this information, to be told these things. And that usually comes over a period of time that I've earned it. I've shown, shown and proved I'm worthy. I can be trusted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. all of that gets circumvented in the treatment environment because we ask you to do something that is usually, for most humans, you know, not normal. And that is, you know what? Do it in reverse. Because there has been nothing done for you not to trust, we're asking you to put your foot out there and trust in advance. Right? Usually the way people work is... You know, they feel you out, they give you a little bit, see what you do with it, and trust is built up and earned over time. And over time, more and more is revealed, and we get to know each other more and more and more and more, and that's what gets us to be closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And by the way, there's a dark side to that too, but (laughs) I may or may not get to that later. But so all of that is circumvented in the treatment environment. So you, you get together with somebody, okay, and now you're on the outside. The relationship started on the inside in whatever fashion, whatever level it got to. 
and now you're trying to continue that on the outside, and it ain't going to work. It doesn't work because normally what you would be spending your time doing is getting to know the person, learning about them, their background, their family, you know, just they're, they're, they're learning them, and that takes a lot of time. That requires a lot of dates, a lot of outings, a lot of whatevers, right? So yep, yep. None of that happens, but now here you are on the outside. Well, what are you talking about? What are you learning about each other? Nothing. Because it's always circumvented, and all the information that you have about this person was obtained through just your presence of being in the treatment environment. You didn't earn it. You weren't proven worthy of it. You haven't put the time in, and, and there's a thing about the time. While you're putting that time in, that relationship is getting an opportunity to develop, prove itself out, whether or not it's going somewhere or not going somewhere. So all of this has this natural, universal, biorhythmic thing to it. This is just all my take, by the way. Yeah, and you know, no, I, I gotta say, I agree, I agree with all of it because, um, I don't know, you know, again, I'll just be kind of repeating what you're saying here, but it makes a lot of sense that you know there are a lot of natural steps, or there's a natural evolution to um, beginning a relationship with somebody that might um, flourish to something greater at some point in the future. And that takes time. Um, it takes time. There is, uh, I don't want to call it a game because that's kind of a, I don't know, that, that word has a connotation to it. But there, there's a sort of a rhythm or, or a game or a dance that's done between two who are going to engage in a relationship where a little bit of trust is, is earned um, by maybe somebody divulges something personal to you or, or some information to you. And what you do with that information and how you respond to that information gives some, you know, the other person a signal as to whether or not you're trustworthy. You're somebody that they feel comfortable sharing these things with. Usually when that happens, then it encourages somebody else to then um, return that um, show of trust or that show of faith into the person who you are engaging in a relationship with by divulging some information of your own and seeing how they and so there's, there's kind of a feeling out, and there's this kind of natural evolution to the way that this relationship will one day blossom, with, which is speaking to your entire point, that if you are put into treatment with somebody, th- that time limit, that um, kind of like an, uh, the analogy of an hourglass where eventually the other side is going to be completely full, and you're going to have completely earned that person's trust, but it flows – very, very slowly. It's, it's a time-staking process that goes on until all that, all the sand has poured into the other side. Whereas when you're in treatment and you're sitting in a group with somebody, and this is a part of the process, uh, that glass is shattered and everything is on the table instantly, and it um, circumnavigates kind of the situation that you would normally have to go through if you were going to engage. In, in a relationship with somebody in the way that, you know, is probably healthiest, we, we, we could say. Mm-hmm. It cheats. 
<laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. It's the old video game cheat code. So oftentimes when these things fail and, and, and you know, for whatever reason, people work their way back to us and um, everything comes out in the open. And uh, I do get an opportunity to tell them that you cheated. Um, but like I mentioned, you know, for, for, for those of us who are either married or have had long-term um, relationships, um, whether or not you're in one now or not is irrelevant. Um, can probably identify with what I'm about to say in terms of the dark side. Um, and I say that in, in jest, of course, jokingly. But, um, you know, when you, when you reveal yourself during the course of that learning process, all of that, of course, is fair game to be used by the other party any way they deem appropriate in, in you know, in love and war. Um, and of course, I learned early on with the misses. We'll leave names out of it to protect the innocent. <laughs> um, that uh, upbringing also impacts because my wife and I were raised totally different. Totally different. There was no that. Arguing was not allowed in my household. If my parents argued, it happened behind closed doors. I didn't know about it. I didn't see yeah. it. Okay. And they did not allow us as children to argue, um, quote unquote, inappropriately. You might be able to debate or discuss using appropriate language, but as far as your tone getting out of whack or what have you, did not happen. That's an old Jamaican thing, right? Mm-hmm. My wife, on the other hand, <laughs> comes from the jungle. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, you know, she's raised, got three sisters, and they're like gangsters. Now, by the way, I didn't know, I didn't know any of this prior to marrying her, okay? <laughs> right, right. This is what makes it so funny, because the things you think that you know, you actually don't know. When you find out, it makes you laugh. She thinks she's getting a certain person because I'm from, New, you know, raised in South Jamaica, Queens, New York. Her family has this image of me, and I have this image of her and them, and it's totally wrong. It's, it's the total opposite of each other, come to find out. So in terms of, you know, my wife knows, of course, everything there is to know about me, and damn it, she uses it. I mean – I used to tell people maybe four times a year I'd raise my voice so they know that there's a man in the house because with the combination of my wife and my two daughters, um, they, they would probably wonder, does a man live there? Because they don't hear me. And it's not because they're yelling. It's their normal voice, and their normal voice is loud. Why is that the case? Because growing up with four, sis, four you know, three sisters and the, and, the, and the women you know, carrying on the way they did, being gangsters and whatnot, uh, they just talk loud. Mm-hmm. The first, now, I didn't know this even when my wife and I, before I took my inaugural trip to England, but when I witnessed it firsthand and saw them interact, it, it I mean, it took me so far aback 
I was not used to seeing females interact that way, speak that way, talk that loud, et cetera, et cetera. It was just so foreign to me. And I was kind of moving away and moving back, wondering when the fisticuffs were going to start. <laughs> right? I'm saying all that to say, even in my wife and I've been married coming up on 27 years, even with that, okay, <clears throat> we don't go outside of our, 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 our natures. My na- I don't, I'm not an argumentative person. I'll participate in an argument, but in my own way, okay? And we've grown enough to the point that I don't try and change the way that she interacts and she doesn't try and change the way I interact. She has learned to mm-hmm. accept. I argue in the way I argue. And I've learned to accept that she argues the way she argues. And neither one of us take it personal. Now, of course, I have more work to do to not take it personal because I didn't grow up in a family where people yelled at each other. She did. Right. Right. Now, of course... We're a little bit different because we didn't, quote, unquote, go through a a normal dating process, okay? I will say we had to learn along the way. Now, the percentage still stands at 99.999999% failure. I'm only aware of one that exists. That's just me personally. Other people might be aware of some more. Um, I'm only aware of one relationship that started in treatment that is still existing as an existing relationship. Okay. You and I are both aware of another one cannot last, did not by the way, like, um, I'm not even that's fair. Talking about, but um, and I believe that that's the reason. She did. What was the? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were going to say? Uh, no. I, your final thought finished it for me, uh, what I was going to interject, but yeah. And we could say, and that's us being around for how long and you can count on, you know, one hand minus a few fingers, uh, how many actually worked and flourish, we should say, uh, to this day. And I don't know the ins and outs of that relationship, but I do, do know that it does exist and they are still together. And it yep. did start in treatment, but it's a 99% failure rate. Um, so we try and discourage it. But again, you're dealing with human beings. You're dealing with human feelings. You're dealing with human emotions, uh, human nature. Um, and sometimes experience becomes the best teacher. But unfortunately, in this, with this subject matter, um, you're talking about you know, not only – you know, just lives, period, but recovery. <clears throat> Usually 
the you know ends up being quote unquote the fall person fall guy the the recovery goes by the wayside and the whole premise for the two persons entering the treatment environment was to achieve recovery yep. and usually the end, end result of it and that's the whole point of this discussion the end result is that they usually end up relapsing unfortunately that's how that's how powerful relationships are feelings are in, in regards to relationships and that they can um the failure of the relationship for someone who's in recovery can send them back into 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 a a negative spiral so I could talk about relationships all day, Mr. Producer. <laughs> of course, yeah, no, it's a huge topic. It's it's uh one that touches everybody in this field for sure. So lots to be said, but I think I think the general or solid points were made. Um you know, and those heed the warning uh or the warnings of folks who have witnessed it for many, many years. There's a there's a time and a place, and when that when that comes to be, you'll you know you'll be happy that you were prepared for that moment, versus rushing into something or forcing something for ulterior motives, whether it be conscious or subconscious. Yep. All right, we're past the top of the hour, sir. All right, we're going to take a little music break. We do see that we've got a number of callers on hold, some that are just listening into the show and some that will be participating in the Recovery Support Time segment, which we do have coming up next. So we hope everybody who is listening has enjoyed the show to this point. And up next will be our Recovery Support Time segment. So we will get with those callers shortly. We appreciate your patience.
Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Hello, 
Boom. We are back from a little music break, and uh, it's Recovery Sport Time, uh, Mr. Host. Are you ready for perhaps a little X-Files? Sure am. <laughs> Let's get oh, it going. The short version. The shortened uh, version. All right. Tyrone from Richmond. He wants to know how he can how can I have a drink or a drinking problem if he can hold his liquor? <laughs> oh boy. Uh for the sake of the audience and myself, would you mind repeating that verbatim? How can I have a drinking problem if I can hold my liquor? How can I have a drinking problem well, if I can hold my liquor? That's one of those questions where the answer is, well, the very nature of the question to lets us know that you have a drinking problem. Right. Do you think just because you can hold your liquor that that doesn't mean you have a problem? Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, anything you want to add to that? Because me that no, I think that good. yeah, I think that's pretty cut and dry. I might add, if you have also tested the limits, i.e., the quantity that you consume, where you have defined it as an amount that would normally get other people drunk, that does not get you drunk in and of itself. Once again, that does speak to the answer written inside the question. Mm-hmm. Sam from Washington D.C. Is it true that alcoholism is a disease? Yes. So far, even though they are close to naming others, that has been the only addiction that was classified in the medical journals as a, as a disease due to the changes in the brain that they noticed and studied over periods of time. Yes, indeedy. Uh, one more before we hit the phones. <clears throat> By the way, just off topic, where did not have a microphone in front of you? Normally, oh, yeah, it is. Normally, I have these things off to the side, but they're in front of me. I'm normally reading around the mic. <laughs> uh, Martha from Oakland. All right, this is quite embarrassing, but you know what? Nothing wrong with a little embarrassment. I'll say it on the air. I got to put my reading glasses on to read this one. Here we go. Writing so small. At what point can I say I have recovered? Is there some way to identify it? When can I change my focus from recovery to my life, my future? Dang it. No, I just had it that at the end. <laughs> I think we have spoken to this before. Yeah, it's definitely been touched on. Um. That's me putting my uh, glasses back. Uh, it used to be, again, here we go with dogma, but this one actually kind of had some l- logic behind it. You know, that if you've been doing your thing for two years plus, you know, that, you know, you do your thing, you know, live your life. Um, and another show to talk about you know what we think about 
you know, calling yourself, you know, an, an addict after 25 years, et cetera, et cetera, except for alcohol. Um, but only you know when you have you know, done that flip, made that commitment, because one of the things the person mentions is when can I, when can I change my focus? And that equates to what you and I used to say, Mr. Producer, when does that weight come off my shoulders and I can now just concentrate on what I'm going to do to improve my life? I don't have to worry about question of using anymore, et cetera. Right. That's been solved. That's been dealt with. I've made my commitment. Now it's about what do I I need to do? What goals do I need to set and accomplish to improve my life? So that focus change happens when that commitment happens and that flip happens. And like we said, it's hard to describe what that feels like. It's more of a spiritual experience, Um, but you'll know it when it happens. Yep. Ready for the phone, sir? Let's do it. All right. Let's go. Let's see who's been holding the longest. Oh, it's almost a tie. Uh, let's go to Daniel holding from Newark. Welcome to the show. Hello, Daniel. Yeah. Welcome to the show. How can we help you, sir? Uh, my question is how do I become comfortable sharing my pain and trusting others? Is that to say that you are not comfortable doing those things? Yeah. It's like like for myself, I have a hard time trusting people and from what I'm sharing because I have feelings that they might hold whatever I say against me. When you um, keep your feelings to yourself, who does it impact? It impacts myself. Just you feelings. They belong to you, nobody else. It only impacts you. Whether the feelings are good, bad, or ugly, it's just it's, they belong to you. So with that thought in mind, here's a perspective that you might consider to use to help you out of that way of thinking. When you speak to your feelings to somebody, and yes, when you do that, you are basically trusting them okay but when you see your feelings you just throw it out there to the universe okay once it leaves you it doesn't bother you anymore it can't do anything to you anymore so what the other person may do with it if they do something bad with it like throw it back in your face or, or, or violate your trust by telling other people and you haven't given them permission to do so, okay? But because you're not no longer claiming it and owning it, once you speak to it, it's out there in the universe. It belongs to the universe. So anyone can pick it up. It can't harm you anymore. It can't do anything for you anymore. And as long as you believe and this is all centered on control. If I keep it, I can control it. But if I let it go, I have no control over it. And that's the dichotomy. 
and you got to be willing to give up the control and let it go. And once it's out there, it's out there. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It's not for you to worry about what happens with it. And when you take that attitude and that perspective, people are going to be telling you to be quiet because they're tired of hearing you talk because you don't care. You're talking to heal yourself. You're not talking to worry about what happens to what you say and what they may do with the information, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm speaking within reason, of course. You understand that. Yeah. You got to give up the control. That's the secret. In a nutshell, at least. Yeah, because um, I think I think from what I feel is like from where I come from, like like being being in institutions and all that, and it's like. Just you know, just the, the the trauma that I've been through in my life, so it's like I have right. a hard time trusting people. And, and, and a little well, bit at a time. A little bit at a time. It doesn't have to happen all at once. It doesn't have. So you know, where you are now, or where you got to in terms of not trusting and so on and so forth, didn't happen overnight. So getting to a space of where you can speak your truth freely takes time so you have to practice daily little bits at a time daily and see what that experience feels like get used to that experience and then you keep on going keep on going keep on going and the hope is that over a period of time you'll be able to overcome your experiences whatever they may have been and they will not prevent you from doing what's healthy for you, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's with your friends, whether it's with your parents, whomever, which is being able to speak to your truth. You understand what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Uh, no, that's basically it. That's just, I just wanted to give some advice on on this topic because I've been I've been asking like like uh my support system and they they just they give me a whole lot of like different answers and you know I I like to gather gather as much information in the, as I can so I can feel more comfortable with other people and express myself and trust other people That's a very good approach. Okay? All right. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Have a- have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. The change doesn't happen overnight, Mr. Producer. <clears throat> no, sir, it does not. Got to work. Key word there is work, and the work means I got to do something. That means I got to put myself out there a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and experience what it feels like, and then keep on going, you know. And what may have developed over 20 years can't change in a month. And so we got to be, you know, understand some realistic expectations of the human being and what they can do and what's a realistic time frame. And for some, a realistic time frame is I have to practice this the rest of my life. And for some, 
you know, after six, seven months, you know, they've incorporated some tools and they, and they, and they practice them daily and, and, and they're on their way. Mm-hmm. So either way. All right, let's go back to the phones. <clears throat> uh, who do we have here? Ariel from Redwood City. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Hi. You're welcome. So my question that I have for you guys is that um, how do you tell um, two small children that you're in recovery when you've been absent out of their life for a year and a half? I have barely just started getting back into my kid's life, and my daughter, she was asking me about recovery recently, last week when I seen her, and I'm going to see her tomorrow. So I just want to know, like, what's a good way to explain um, how's recovery because everybody in her family on her dad's side is an addict, her grandma was a, an addict. My dad's an addict, so um, you know we have act people who she's seen that have been in their addictions. Me and her dad were in our addiction together in a relationship. Um, I just want to know how can I describe, you know, how can I explain to her that about that I'm in recovery and stuff like that because she's asking about that and I don't know how to explain it, recovery. How old? How old? She's nine years old. Nine years old. She's nine years old, going on twenty. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she's gonna be nine. Now, are, were you joking, joking, or joking serious when you say that she's kind of ahead of the curve in terms of her ability to understand things? No, she's really smart. Uh, okay. She. I feel like she didn't see, I didn't do my addiction in front of her, but she seen me get abused. She seen me get um, physical altercations with ex, my ex and um, mm-hmm. with her dad as well. And um, she seen me while I was high, so she knew I was acting different when I was sober and when I wasn't. So she knew, she she knows, and um, she's very smart. She took on the the role of being a kind of stepping up a little bit motherly, Per se, mm. when her brother was small, mm-hmm. um, changing diapers and stuff like that. So um, she's um, okay. kind of like grown a little faster. Okay. So yeah. you've presented today's word of the day, Mr. Producer, dichotomy. There you, you go. You pre- presented a dichotomy for me because um, one side of me wants your daughter to experience information that's appropriate for a nine-year-old. And another side of me says, well, she's already experienced stuff that a nine-year-old shouldn't. And only you over time and others that have been around her can speak to her ability, her what, what her coping ability has been, um, and if it has reflected itself negatively in any you know parts of her life, we don't know that. Um, I don't know if you know that yet. But with all that said, okay, if someone put a gun to my head and said you got to choose one, in this circumstance, I would tell you to, I would advise, I would suggest that you try and explain to her what recovery is about. Based on what you have said and what you have, you know, revealed, um, 
And if I was in your shoes, I would maybe not all in one shot, but I would, I would start that slow process of explaining to her that. Because if she is as how you say she is, and if she has witnessed uh-huh. what you have say she has witnessed, then she kind of, uh, you know, what they call is, is already an old soul. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah. You can still be gentle. You can still be nine-year-old appropriate, but you can still be truthful. Okay. So it's just about choosing your words wisely. Words that you can then, you know, she doesn't know what it means. You can explain to her what it what it means. But you wouldn't shouldn't be afraid to say, you know, I, I was a drug addict. I was addicted to drugs that people shouldn't use because they're bad for them, and I was using them. And this is what it caused me to do or not do, et cetera, et cetera. You know, th- language like that. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. That makes sense. I hope we helped you. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you have. <laughs> I need that, another a, uh, perspective. Okay, that's a difficult <laughs> subject. That's a difficult one. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. You, All right, have a good day. All right, bye-bye. Bye. I don't know, Mr. Producer, which one would you have taken? <laughs> you know, what's funny as she's asking that is I'm thinking um, – and it, you know, we chose or, or the topic was chosen the day of relationships for the show. And we mentioned that it's something that we hear time and time again. When, when she asked this question, I said, this is another thing um, that gets asked all the time about the children and um, you know, at what age is it appropriate to tell them what I struggled with and you know, how much is too much to divulge and um you know, it almost might make for a good topic for a whole show in and of itself because we get asked it so many times. Uh, but yeah, it's just another super, super common question. And I don't think there's a cookie cutter answer. Uh, you no. know, she, she said in, in the question, uh, she mentioned that, you know, her daughter is wise beyond her years. And then, um, you know, you asked if she was just saying that joking around or um, if, her daughter was, you know, seriously kind of like you described at the end, an old soul, because that is also going to determine, okay, uh, you know, she's nine going on, whatever mentally um, is going to dictate, you know, how you share that information and how much of it you choose to share. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's just a, it's a question we hear all the time. I I thought that I found that interesting. Um, That's something we get all the time. So What we don't know, and this is a perfect example of when you don't know, you don't know. We don't know what impact this has had on the nine-year-old. You know, like, how's she doing in school? You know, is it impacting her schoolwork, et cetera? Um, you know, how, what's her behavior? And, you know, all, all those things that you – things you'd be looking for to see if there has been negative impact to the child – because of what's been going on with the adults in their life. And, well, it sounds like home. It sounds like New right. York on a, on a summer day. Hearing that siren in the background. <laughs> um, All right. So you, you're operating kind of blind, not knowing, you know, obviously that information. 
and trying to advise the person the best route that they should uh, take, you know. And with her saying that the child is, you know, a little bit, you know, wise beyond their years, that's what gives you pause to, like, normally you'd be saying, you know, well, you know, kind of stretch it out a little bit. Let, let, her, let her be nine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. She really right. had to spend enough time being old, you know, doing things that really weren't her responsibility. Now's the time to let her be nine. But I don't know. Whichever one she chooses will be your fault. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, yeah, yeah. No, oh, that's, uh, I think you can't really go wrong. You know, you know, way. we we got to come up with a, a sound clip when someone presents a, di- a question that presents a serious dichotomy like that. That right, we play the right. sound. We, we play our sound clip that says we are not responsible for it. <laughs> yeah, our little disclaimer. <laughs> oh, man. Can't go wrong either way, but you know what, too? And, and the parent has to have the best feel for it. You know, nobody knows their child as well as their uh, well, you know, she mom or dad. She's been, but because she's been out of the mix for the last right. year and a half, she may right. not have the best feel for, you know, what, how the child has been doing and you know etc so who knows true enough um i got another x-file question here from maritza from monterey speaking of uh relationships and our subject topic today isn't it possible that two people who care a great deal that's in capitals by the way great deal for each other can go through recovery together and be successful in their endeavor. Endeavor is plural. Now, I'm presuming that the endeavors is what, their relationship? (laughs) Yeah, I would imagine, given the question, the context of the question. Yeah. Two people who care great deal for one another can go through treatment together and be successful in their endeavor. No, no, the answer is no. 99% fail if it's romantic. Are we saying that two people of opposite sex cannot have a a very strong platonic, build a strong platonic relationship? I'm not saying that. I know of many that are platonic and very strong, close, close friends. But, um, for that to foster itself out of the blue in the treatment environment, meaning two people who don't know each other, to come together in the treatment environment, opposite sex, and foster a platonic relationship, um, I won't say is rare because it happens. And, and because you know people are in the same peer group, right, male and female, and 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 you know they they become very good friends, um, right. What it does require is, you know, maturity. Absolutely. Requires maturity, honesty, responsibility, all of those things that, you know, are important. So I hope that answers the question, Maritza. Moving right along. Another X-Files, another dichotomy, 
I'll let you answer this first, Mr. Producer. Put you on put okay. you on the spot. Peter from Concord. Will smoking medical marijuana compromise my recovery from meth? We've heard that one before. Yeah, sure. Interesting, though, how he qualifies the statement with compromise my recovery with or from meth and not just compromise my recovery in general. I, I find that to be an interesting way to word the question. Um, but our take on this, and, and I will speak freely for the both of us since we've both touched on this topic numerous times throughout the years on the show here, uh, is that, you know what, if it is medically prescribed and used within the parameters that the doctor has set forth to deal with whatever condition it has been prescribed for, um, to keep you living a life free from suffering or misery, uh, then I would say it, you know, that's an okay route to use that medicinally. Now, it's a very nuanced kind of situation to answer the question as to whether or not it'll compromise your recovery as it pertains to meth or just your recovery in general. Only you can answer that. Um, if you get a prescription for medical marijuana to deal with some sort of medical ailment and you begin to use uh, your prescription and you start to feel yourself slipping, you start to see yourself using it outside of the means with which it was prescribed or you start to feel uh, tempted to do other things, then you're the only one that has the ability to say, you know what, I'm going to have to go back to the doctor and ask for another method with which to manage this medical um, ailment because using the marijuana is not working for me because I'm beginning to feel myself um, contemplate or feel things that are not very comfortable. Uh, that said, if you, you know, on the other hand, if that is something that is prescribed to you and you use it with the doctor's orders and you don't have an issue with it or struggle with it, then I would say it's totally fine. Um, you know, their medicine and, and the field of medicine is constantly evolving. And there are medicines that we don't even blink at to this day, even some that are now sold over the counter, that if uh, the conversation were brought up 20 or 30 years ago, um, you, would, you would get a very volatile answer. And so marijuana is that new um, topic, you know, hot topic, the new uh, topic du jour, if you will. And so as it currently stands, there's a lot of debate in the field because of its newness. Um, but in time, you know, it will be like that of any other medicine. And you have to determine just as you would have to determine if you were in pain and got prescribed painkillers, um, you know, if that was going to be detrimental to your recovery. You are the only one that can determine that. But I would say if it's been legitimately prescribed and you're using it for what it's been prescribed for, uh, then good on you for, for doing what it is you have to do. Um, I would say, and this is something I think you and I have both touched on on previous shows, uh, Mr. Host, but um, for some it may be best if you did have to take it for medicinal purposes that you took it 
in a pill form or some sort of edible form um, because and, – and this is not – this is just from what I've heard, feedback that I've heard, is that you know smoking it can be very, very triggering. So no bongs? No bong rips. No, sir. <laughs> uh, you take your pill in the morning and you move on about your day. What is that new thing that they have? Um, you always call it new blunts. You're referring to the blunts. No, 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 no. no I don't. Well, the blunts back in the day meant something different, not what they what they use today with the damn uh, um, cigar paper. But um, these uh, what do they call hookah lounges? Ah, the hookah lounge. Yes, sir. Yeah. So that's where people go to smoke, right? Yeah, uh, it's a it is very Middle East, steeped in Middle Eastern tradition in their culture, and they smoke different flavored tobaccos. I know, and, but uh, hasn't it been kind of? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, co-op- yeah, no, people... co-opted over here. <laughs> yes, yes, no, actually, yeah, there are hookah lounges here, and uh, all owned, usually, and operated by folks of Middle Eastern descent and you get live dancing and tea and it's a whole deal to do uh-oh, on Friday uh-oh. or Saturday night. Uh oh, live dancing. Live dancing, yes. But uh the those uh devices, the hookahs, if you will, have also been used in the privacy of folks' homes and many a high school party, uh and we're not smoking the flavored tobacco out of those in those circumstances. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, just, to, just to wrap that question up, I agree with you regarding Mr. Peters. Uh, uh, I, I always find it interesting when the qualifier is added at the end regarding a specific drug in terms of recovery. Someone says, "My recovery yeah, right, that from was odd for me. heroin or my recovery from this or recovery from that," rather than just like as you eloquently stated your recovery in general, period. Right. Holistically, not just particularly from a particular substance. Um, point being that we have a lot of dry, I know we have to come up with another term. We say dry drunks, but it, we, we mean it globally. Dry addicts, I guess. Right, right, right. right. <clears throat> uh, another question from the X-Files. Um Rebecca from San Diego, my husband is still using, but he refuses to go to treatment. What steps do I take to encourage him to go? Wow. I'm going to let you have fun with that one. That's a, that's a tough one. Not for me. Okay, let's the, hear it. The, the, the answer is unfortunate, but it's pretty simple, and that is um, – there is nothing. There are no steps to take other than if, I mean, let me rephrase that. This all depends on what the impact the person is having, meaning, I mean, if they're in a full-blown, you know, everything that's tied down, that's not tied down in the house is being sold and stolen, then you got to do what? You got to put them out the house. But if it's not that situation, you got a functional addict, so to speak, but they don't believe that they have a problem, there's nothing that you can tell them. And that's a cold, hard reality. It's an unfortunate reality. And you have to wait until they experience 
a consequence or a bottom, if you will, that causes them to take to take uh, corrective corrective action. You is what we hope, but that is not guaranteed. Yeah. And ten thousand people screaming from the top of a mountain cannot force somebody to do something that they are not willing and or ready to do. So that's why I started to say, you know, it's nothing. There's nothing you can do. And, um, you know, over the last year, as my brother has struggled on and off with his his addiction, um, his alcoholism, and my mom calls me to get the same answer over and over again, there's, you know, there's, she, there's nothing you can do, Mom. You can pray. You can certainly pray for the person um, outside of intervention. Spiritual intervention, absolutely, but you can't put them in a headlock, can't punch them in the nose. It's not going to make them do something they're not ready and willing to do for themselves. So that's the difficulty for those of, you know, the family members that are, you know, on the outside. So that's that. Yeah. Okay. Here's one for you, Mr. Producer. Okay. And I will be uh, making sure that we uh, edit the clip of your response to this one to play back <laughs> at a future date. Um, will my – this is Ted from Tulsa. Will my sex life ever be exciting now that I'm sober? Absolutely not. <laughs> Easy answer. <laughs> Easy answer. Oh, boy. You know, it's funny. Wow. We're getting a lot of, uh, I guess maybe that's just par for the course when we're doing the show is a lot of people have similar questions or thoughts when they are uh, engaging in this path, uh, this journey of recovery. Um, it's It's a funny question, a silly question. If the fear is genuine, then I suppose it's a genuine Um Different, I guess, might be the word to describe, and and I think that would go for any activity um, that you were used to doing under the influence. Um, you know, a lot of people, oh, you know, going to the club. Well, going to a club, going to a nightclub, um, or going out to dance, will that be different or enjoyable if I'm not drinking or if I'm not high? Will going to a concert, a rap concert, a rock concert, whatever the concert may be, um, how will that how will that change and will that ever be fun again if I'm not drinking or getting high? Uh, going to the baseball game or the football game or watching a game with my buddies, will that be fun if I'm not drinking beers or, or doing whatever it is? So you can really attach that question to any part of your life where – when you were engaged in whatever activity it was you were used to doing so under the influence, um, the easy answer is yes. You can enjoy all of these things without getting higher, without drinking. Um, it may take some getting used to. It may be different. I know a lot of buddies who, um, you know, it's very different for them to, to go to a baseball game or a football game or, or watch a game with friends and not be drinking beer um, or people who like to go out to nightclubs and dance clubs on a Friday or a Saturday and not be intoxicated uh, under, you know, some, some substance or, or concerts, like I mentioned. Uh, but that's not to say that they weren't enjoyed. 
um, being under the influence may have ch- being under the influence may have changed your experience, mm-hmm. and so going back to experience those things while not under the influence may be different. But that's not to say that they're going to be any worse. They're just going to be different. Uh, I think the main thing to speak to in that is you yourself will hopefully be living a better life um, if you're abstaining from, uh, you know, abusing substances and whatnot. And if you are happier with who you are and your place in life, then everything that you do throughout that life is going to be more enjoyable and more pleasurable because at your core, you're very happy with where you're at. Um, And I would say that the same is probably true. On the other hand, uh, if you are engaged in using drugs and things of that nature and maybe not so happy with the way your life is going, um, then the events that you experience in that place in your life are not going to be um, as pleasurable because you're you're not happy with the core of who you are, what you're doing. Uh, that would be my my lengthy answer, but the easy answer is, of course, yes, uh, you can enjoy everything in life um, free from drugs and alcohol. Of course, there is only one. There is one exception. Might be more. I'm not aware of. And that is, if you remember a show from some time ago where we discussed a word called anhedonia. Okay. Do you remember that? Uh, Vaguely, yes. Okay. So anhedonia is a word I was looking up or found in some book in the Swan Lake Library. I have no idea why I was looking that up, why I was reading that. I I couldn't begin to tell you. All I know is is that at some point during my training, somebody asked me, or some, the question was asked, does someone know the definition of anhedonia? And I happen to know it because I read it. And so anhedonia is something that's usually accompanied uh, or suffered by um, extreme coke addicts. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it means is the person is incapable of experiencing pleasure as a result of their significant cocaine use because of the damage that it has done to the pleasure centers of the brain. Yeah, they've burnt out those receptors. Right. And I'm not sure why specifically they've only, you know, attached it to cocaine, maybe because of the the way that cocaine interacts with those pleasure yeah, centers. Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, the, um, chemi- um, the chemical interaction. Yeah. So other, you know, putting other than that, okay, um, clean and sober uh, is definitely a better experience um, all around. Now, you do know, and we do know, that sometimes people who who have not hit parative bottoms, like so, one person hit a bottom, they became homeless, they're on the street, strung out. Another person I'm gonna not not to interject, but I'm gonna speed you up here because we are up against it. How much time do I got, sir? Uh, you have negative thirty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I, mi- I I I missed the speed bump to ask you how much time do I got. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I will carry that thought forward in our next broadcast. Lovely. Beautiful. Well done. 
Great show, great topic, and we look forward two weeks from now to getting after another topic again. A quick shout-out to everybody who called in to participate in the Recovery Sports Time segment or those who just called in to listen. Uh, We always appreciate the ongoing support, and so thank you all for those of you who who called in um, to either listen or participate. We love you guys, and, and this is why we do it. Um, that said, we will be back at it again in a couple of weeks. We hope that everybody has a productive couple of weeks, safe and fun couple of weekends. We're going to send you out here with a little music, and we will be back at it later this month.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.